Welcome one and all to RFK All the Way, your podcast for commentary on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign. This is Matthew Tower, your host, and once again, I'm joined by the New York Times bestselling historian and author, David Talbot. We're picking up where we left off to discuss the Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the rise of America's secret government. So David, as you can see in the background, I whipped up an image in honor of your amazing book. This was done in Midjourney using artificial intelligence. And Midjourney didn't totally cooperate with the prompt I gave it. What I told it to do was create Alan Dulles playing devil chess. But the chess pieces would not be normal chess pieces, but would instead be CIA assets who were involved in the big event. So we would have had Bill Harvey and James Angleton and David Atlee Phillips, but then there would be a piece that would be sacrificed, a pawn that would be sacrificed, who would be Lee Oswald. And in the background, we would have had a red, white, and black flag that was evocative of the American flag, but with the CIA logo. We only got part of the image, but what do you think of the image before we jump into the content? I, of this? I love it. I love it. You did it with the AI. I think Dallas would approve. Excellent. Thank you. For our listeners who are not watching this episode, we're going to put an image of it in the podcast image notes. Okay, great. So let's go ahead and jump into the content. Here's where I wanted to start off with, with something kind of out of the blue, which is, I don't know if you've watched the All In podcast, where Bobby actually appeared about a month ago. The All In podcast is with a number of tech leaders, Jason Calacanis, David Friedberg, David Sachs, and Chamath Paul Hapatia. And Chamath said something very interesting in episode 131 of the podcast, which ties into your book. What he said was, quote, Recently, when you look at how the White House behaves, the thing that I'm worried about is that there's almost like this sensation that there's a shadow government that's actually running the country. And we didn't elect any of those people. He also said, is this a moment where we actually need to be very responsible about the future of the country and not create some puppet government situation? So what would you say to Chamath in light of the devil's chessboard and the rise of America's secret government? And isn't this the horrible reality we've been dealing with for more than 60 years? Well, I'm glad the tech elite is finally waking up to the political reality in this country. But as you say... We've been laboring as American citizens under the shadow government for a long time, certainly since the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. I think this was a triumph for the deep state, for the invisible government, for the permanent government, whatever you call it. At the time, Alan Dulles loomed very large in that shadow government. He attempted to run for Congress very abysmally in New York City. It was his only effort to join the political fray. For the most part, though, he and his brother, John Foster Dulles, as I write in my book, operated behind the scenes. And that's the way I think that real power is exercised in this country. When you talked about Alan Dulles running for Congress quite unsuccessfully, it reminds me of that scene in Seven Days in May 
when the president is having a conversation with the general who's trying to overthrow him and trying to coup the country. And the president says, well, why don't you just take your agenda to the American people and let them decide whether that is the agenda that they want? Why don't you operate out in the light like all the rest of us and subject yourself to the will of the voters? I'm paraphrasing. So it's quite interesting that Dulles could not effectuate his agenda by democracy, and he added to do it through covert means. That's true. And that's what the devil's chessboard is really about, how he and others like him basically manipulated the country and those who held elected office to the president for decades. And I think it's these people, as I say, who really put together the Cold War, put together the Vietnam War, things that we suffered as citizens and throughout the world, people suffered at the hands of Alan Dulles in the Iran coup, the Guatemala coup, one regime change after the next. And he brought this killing team, I believe, home to Dallas in 1963. Now, I still think we're living under the legacy of the shadow government. When President Biden, who's done many good things and many bad things, once again sides with the national security state and suppresses the 1992 JFK Act, a law that was meant to reveal all the documents related to the Kennedy presidency to the American people once and for all. President Biden obstructed that law not long ago. He's now the subject of a lawsuit that's been filed in federal court by two people I know, by two JFK researchers, Bill Simpich and Jefferson Morley, on behalf of the Mary Farrell Foundation which has gathered all the documents it can on the Kennedy case. When President Biden blocks that law, he is once again saying the CIA is more powerful, is more important agency than the rule of law in this country. And that's the kind of country we live in. Again and again, the president, who's our duly elected representative, sides with the national security state whether it's President Trump, President Biden, and so forth. The last president to defy the power of the military in the intelligence establishment in this country had his head blown off. It's so profound. I'm going to quote a couple things from Chessboard, and what I'd like to do is take us through the narrative arc, hit some of the main points that you cover in the book. You wrote in the prologue, The Devil's Chessboard Seeks to Shine a Torch down the well of deep politics, as Peter Dale Scott, an important scholar of American power, has termed this underworld of unaccountable authority until we have a full reckoning of the Dulles era and its high crimes. The country cannot find its way forward. So we're going to do the brief version of that in this episode. So let's first talk about Alan Dulles as a Nazi sympathizer. You wrote in Devil's Chessboard about his son, Alan Dulles Jr. After he was injured in Korea, quote, he, Dulles Jr., sometimes launched into angry denunciations of his father as a Hitler lover and Nazi collaborator, outbursts that the family labeled paranoid, but were close enough to the truth to unnerve the senior Dulles. Furthermore, in a 2007 interview with Mark Depew of the Lincoln Presidential Library, when asked, what do you recall about growing up 
Dulles Jr. responded, well, I remember there were some very unusual things. I think the basis of it, I have just recently started to learn, was that Alan Welsh Dulles was a German spy. So, David, how true or false were Alan Jr.'s accusations? And if you were now to verbally prosecute a case against Dulles Sr. on the basis of his son's charges, what would you say? I believe that Alan Jr., who was a very bright person before he was injured in the war in Korea, tragically, was onto something. He knew about his father's, I think, betrayal of the country as a spy for the OSS, the predecessor of the CIA, during World War II. I believe the power of the Dulles brothers, even before the war, came from Sullivan and Cromwell, the leading Wall Street law firm. His older brother, John Foster Dulles, was the senior partner who ran that law firm. And he was the junior partner, Alan Dulles. And he did a lot of espionage work, black bag jobs for their corporate clients. They defied President Roosevelt's attempt to reform Wall Street after the crash and the Great Depression, New Deal reforms aimed at Wall Street. He told his clients, Foster, ignore these laws or obstruct them or go slow or walk slow. He was very defiant, and they were Republicans, obviously, both brothers, and were very opposed to the New Deal policies of FDR. So during the war, Alan Dulles gets himself stationed in Bern, Switzerland, World War II. He's the leading spy, American spy, on continental European soil during the war. I believe, and FDR, I believe, was wily enough, shrewd enough to realize this, that Dulles was essentially a double agent, as I call him. He was working in Switzerland very, I think, aggressively to make ties, to cement ties with his former German Nazi clients and to make sure the post-war Germany was to his and his clients' liking. Favored the West, was anti-communist anti-left, and so on. Uh, He was more concerned with that than he was concerned with Hitler's war crimes against humanity. A number of people slipped across the border, the German-Swiss border, with great peril, great danger to their own lives, to tell Dulles about the concentration camps, to tell him about the death camps that Jews were being transported to. Dulles was not interested in that. He was interested rather in political sort of machinations within Hitler's Germany, if the Communist Party was still intact, and and whether the Communists would take over after Hitler was defeated and so forth. He then went against specific policy of President Roosevelt and Churchill in England, policy and Stalin, uh, our ally at the time in Soviet Union. We would have unconditional surrender. We would demolish Hitler's regime and crush it. They called for unconditional surrender at their summit meeting, the Allies, in Casablanca during the war. Dulles violated that agreement. He secretly began negotiations with the top general in Italy, the top Nazi general, Karl Wolf, at the end of the war, near the end of the war. That was called Operation Sunrise. That was the secret negotiation that he entered into with Carl Wolf during those years and months, rather. He protected Carl Wolf against the Italian partisans, 
who wanted to kill him because he, of course, had blood on his own hands. He killed many Italian partisans, many partisan fighters as the top Nazi general, SS general in Italy during the war. So Karl Wolf should have been put on trial at Nuremberg after the war. Instead, he was protected by Allendahl's, as a number of Nazi war criminals were. And he went on to become quite prosperous in post-war Germany as an advertising executive through the patronage of Alan Dulles. Dulles did this a number of times, really most notoriously with Reinhard Galen, another person who should have been put on trial at Nuremberg after the war. Reinhard Galen was in charge of Hitler's intelligence on the bloody Eastern Front during the war. He should have, as I said, been prosecuted at Nuremberg. Instead, because of Dulles' patronage and protection, he becomes the top spy in post-war West Germany, a role that he, I think, played for a number of years because of Dulles' support. In many ways, both Reinhard Galen and Alan Dulles create the Cold War. They create it by creating the sense of the Soviet Union as a menacing power that's bent on invading the West. They're not. The Soviet Union was destroyed by World War II, as we know, and was really focused on rebuilding its power and catching up in the nuclear arms race with the United States. They were very far behind. They were deathly afraid, and they should have been afraid that the militarists in the U.S. would start a nuclear war and they'd be at at a severe disadvantage. So I believe that Alan Dulles would have been put on trial if FDR had lived. He died tragically in the waiting uh, days of the, the war. He died in April 1945. He and his brother, John Foster Dulles, would have been put on trial as traitors to this country. They were pro-Nazi, they were negotiating with the enemy, they were abetting the enemy. Many of them had been former corporate clients of theirs. In any case, they wanted these people to rule in post-war Germany. In this history that you're describing, I would call this essential reading for any American citizen. And I encourage our listeners to go deeper and to read The Devil's Chessboard and really go through it. Because without understanding this arc, I don't think any American alive today can truly understand our country and our present reality. Well, I agree. And I I I went into great detail in the book. I used documents that have been recently released on Nazi collaboration. There were Nazi hunters who worked for Jimmy Carter's Justice Department who dug up a lot of information about the complicity of the Dulles brothers and others during the war with the Nazi regime. I interviewed people who were agents, who people were military veterans who worked against the Dulleses, tried to round up the Nazi war criminals after the war, and they were only to find them released from prison in Italy and other places because of the intervention of Alan Dulles and James Angelson, who was a, a deputy of Alan Dulles and later became head of counterintelligence for the CIA uh, during the Cold War. So these were nefarious characters, and the American people should know about that. The fact that the leading airport in Washington is named after his brother, the Dulles Airport, is an outrage. 
that name should be stripped from the airport and replaced with someone much more suitable, someone who tried to save this country like Martin Luther King Jr. So I've been campaigning in my small way to do that. But this legacy, this history is a very dark one and should be known by every American. And I agree with you, Matthew, that this history should be taught in American schoolrooms. It won't be <laughs> for obvious reasons. Even the New York Times and the Washington Post, my book was a bestseller, a New York Times bestseller, but they refused to touch it. The book editor for the Washington Post told my book publicist, we're going to touch this book with a 10-foot pole. So they ghosted my book, they censored it, and it's still sold because people want the truth. People are desperate for the truth in this country, the way that you know, a starving man in a desert would be desperate for a cracker. You know, it's like we have an empire of lies that we live in, I would assert. And the truth is so important. And coming back, I'd like to make a point about Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. I'm actually kind of of two minds about it. On one hand, yes, I would much rather that be the Martin Luther King Jr. Airport or any you know, true American hero who was on the side of freedom and justice and equality and opposing the war machine and so forth. On the other hand, I think there's something almost kind of meaningful about the fact that people walk into Dulles Airport and they most of them cannot cogently answer what the significance was of the person who that airport is named after. And I would like to see the changing of the name of that airport be married with an awareness and awakening of who the Dulles brothers were. And I wrote something for you relative to this, that Alan Dulles's name and Don Foster Dulles's name, that both of their names are completely unknown to the average American, is, if anything, a feather in the cap of the nation's overthrower and conqueror and his brother. I would say Alan was the main one and then John Foster side by side. But, you know, if anything, it's a feather in the cap of the nation's overthrower and conqueror who sought to manipulate everything like a nefarious chess player, invisible to the pieces who believed they were making their own moves, but were in fact under his control. Yeah, I agree with you. It's teaching moment, as President Obama would say, for people to realize that the airport is named after a criminal person, Foster Dulles, John Foster Dulles who should go down infamy instead of having airports named after him. But I do think at some point the name of that airport should be changed because it is an outrage. It's like naming an airport in Germany after Hitler or, or one of his, uh, his top aides. I'm absolutely with you that the name should be changed. And also, I don't want their crimes to be forgotten. We must have that awareness moment so that we can know, we can actually know why we're changing the airport's name. In other words, if the name gets changed without anyone knowing why it's getting changed, that's more of their victory. Their victory is operating in darkness, in obscurity with their crimes. Let's talk a little bit about psychology. So you wrote in Chessboard, the drive for absolute control was the only passion that truly gripped Alan Dulles. So can you tell us a little bit about what motivated him? What can you tell us about the shark as his wife Clover and his lover Mary Bancroft called him in his psychology? I think what he really got off on, and many 
men, particularly men in power, are, are the same. They're on a spectrum. I think he was a psychopath, Alan Dulles. He liked sending people to their death. He told his mistress he liked to see the little necks of the white mice snapped as they fell into his trap. He was a sick man, I think, a very charming one, but a sick one. And his own sister realized this, Eleanor, at some point, realized he was quite capable of of violence in darkness and evil. And his daughter, who I interviewed extensively, Joan Dulles, who became by the way, a psychotherapist in New Mexico, moved as far away as she could from her father. I believe that she was on to him as well. He seemed on the surface to be a genial character. They called him the old man affectionately within the CIA. He was very popular within the CIA. He could be a, you know, a great raconteur. He was very popular at parties in Washington and so on. But he had the streak in which he was ruthless, amoral, very violent man. And I think he was able to explain away the deaths of people. In some ways, I, I have a chapter on the Field family, people he knew well. These were not enemies by any means. They were people who were kind of in his social circle. He knew the Field family for years. He inserted Noel Field as a dangle, cynically, I think, in 1950 as part of Operation Splinter Factor into the Iron Curtain, into Slovakia as a uh, Dallas spy. He was dangled as a Dallas spy in front of uh, Joseph Stalin. He increased Stalin's paranoia, and it resulted in a massive wave of repression, show trials, torture, executions. Dulles was delighted by this. Noel Field and his family were victims of this crackdown, spent many years in dungeons being tortured by you know, agents of the Soviet Union, of the Stalin regime. That's something that most of us feel very guilty about, that he'd done this to the Field family, and that many patriots, many liberals, Jews, were rounded up by Stalin and killed as a result of Dulles' machinations. Again, most people would feel very strong remorse about this uh, of some sort. He gloated instead. He and Frank Wesner, who was his deputy at the CIA at the time and was also an architect of Operation Splinter Factor. These are cynical, I believe, amoral men. I believe Alan Dulles was a psychopath. I tell the story as a young man. He watched his younger sister I believe he was 14 at the time. He could swim quite well, flying out to the lake, Lake Ontario, to her death. He watched strangely, passively, and his mother finally heard her cries and came down, running from the house and saved her, uh, fortunately. But Alan Dulles could have done that as well. I think he was obsessed with death. I think he was obsessed with his own power, his own ability to send men, primarily men, to their death. And uh, I believe he put the assassination teams together for the CIA that operated with great, you know, license to kill in the 1950s. And he brought the same execution team home to Dallas to kill President Kennedy, who is his arch political enemy. 
And then Alan Dulles got himself appointed to the Warren Commission, and it should have been called the Dulles Commission because, of course, he was so active on that commission investigating the assassination of the president. I'd just like to briefly read you what I wrote about Dulles' psychology, and then we'll go on to some other points. Here's my take is Dulles seemed to be driven by a destructive admixture of ultra-nationalist ideology, sociopathic and malignant narcissistic personality disorders, and an almost religious devotion and obeisance to corporate greed, especially when his corporate masters flung tiny scraps of their profits at him in the form of gluttonous lifestyle perks. But whatever his motivations, what matters most is his impact on the past, the present, and the future, a legacy that must be confronted if American democracy is to be anything more than a mirage. Is that a reasonable take, David, before we move on? I I think so. I think I'd like to add one more thing, that he was in some ways a very dangerous hollow man who was willing to put his own family make his own family victims. Most of us, you know, our natural instinct is to protect our families, is to throw up a curtain around them, take care of them. But Alan Dulles was willing to put his own son in the hands of CIA scientists, MK Ultra scientists, and his own wife in the hands of these mad scientists who were doing experiments on people at the time. He lacked a moral compass. He's a very dangerous man. This is a man who's quite capable of killing a president and, and rationalizing it and saying he was doing the country's will. He was doing his patriotic duty by killing him. Expanding on the psychological part, can we just talk a bit about the motivation in terms of who he served, the power behind the power, the men behind Dulles? He was a longtime attorney at Sullivan and Cromwell. His clients and the firm's clients seem to encapsulate a who's who of the ruling oligarchy in which his activities as a lawyer and eventually as CIA director seemed entirely about enriching his benefactors. He was never very wealthy. His lifestyle of fine dining and spa visits with heated towels were the result of the largesse of his clients. So what can you tell us about this kind of relationship with the power behind him and who he served? Well, you're right, Matthew. He himself was not a wealthy man, and he didn't aspire to great wealth. He lived fairly modestly. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister who didn't really care about material comfort. But he himself, Alan Dulles, was, you're right, the benefactor of these much wealthier clients than he had throughout his life at Solon and Cromwell, at the CIA, and so forth. So he liked swanning around in that world. He liked being taken care of. He liked using their homes of the wealthy clients. But he himself didn't really, you know, uh, accrue much wealth during his lifetime. That wasn't important to him. I think power was much more important to him and being invited into their world. He represented the top oil companies. He represented mining giants. He represented the top agribusiness, you know, fruit and other companies. So he represented both at Solomon Cromwell and also, by the way, at the Council on Foreign Relations, the elite club in New York that he and his brother ran for a number of years. These were the places where wealthy people, insiders like him, could gather comfortably and discuss policy, could gripe about the way the country is being run, how it should be run, how the policies should be different. So 
men like the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the oil giants, the mining giants, they were all clients of Alan Dulles. And I believe he actually had to get sign off from them before he would go forward with his own actions. He was not rogue by any means. As we think about the JFK assassination and kind of analyzing it, if we converge everything onto Alan Dulles as the lead organizer, right? It might be tempting to stop there, but to have a much more comprehensive understanding of the entirety of it, we have to bring in all the powers behind him who financed it and signed off on it and really wanted that to happen. Because at the end of the day, Dulles was on one hand power hungry, but on the other hand, he was kind of a de facto attorney for those people throughout his entire life, wasn't he? Yeah, he knew the chain of command, and he knew they were more powerful, certainly more wealthy than he was. But he thought of them as part of his circle, uh, the Rockefeller brothers, David Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, who ran for the presidency in 1964. They thought Kennedy was a great threat to their interests throughout Latin America and here at home. C. Douglas Dillon was another close friend of his. He liked going to his estate in France. Douglas Dillon was another Wall Street guy, wealthy family, who was Secretary of the Treasury, one of those who Kennedy had kept on because he felt it was important to unify the country. He won the presidency by such a narrow margin in 1960. And Doug Dillon, by the way, as Secretary of the Treasury, was in charge of the Secret Service at performed so badly in Dallas the day the president was killed. They should have been grilled. He should have been grilled. And the Secret Service agents that day by the Warren Commission afterwards. But they weren't. Doug Dillon, as I write in the book, was given kid glove treatment by Dulles and others on the Warren Commission when he appeared before the committee. So I believe that this was the world that Dulles came out of. He and others felt they knew what was best for the country, what was best for the oil industry, what was best for the country, what was good for GM was good for the country. He had a very corporate, very elite, very anti-democratic view of America, and this collided head-on with President Kennedy's own vision. I think you said it all there in terms of the entire arc of his psychology and where that led for our country. So... If it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about a controversial topic, the F word, fascism. Mussolini said that fascism can be called corporatism because it is a merger of state and corporate power. So here's my take, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. The old man, Alan Dulles, could have given Hitler and Mussolini positive advice and wise counsel on the most effective implementation of fascism. For Dulles's version of fascism, the covert version was far more durable and enduring than the rigid, strong, yet ultimately brittle version of overt fascism the German and Italian dictators organized. For it is only when people believe themselves and everyone around them to be free, and when the authorities delegitimize as conspiracy theorists all oppositional voices who decry any harmful symptom or the overall structure of this social imprisonment and its source, that covert fascism can finally achieve its ultimate victory of domination over the controlled hive mind of humans programmed 
to do fascism's very bidding in the name of a phony freedom. What are your thoughts about that take on Dulles and what he created? Well, in general, I think you're right that the form of control we have in this country is much more effective. The media, the government, you know, ostensibly operate with great freedom. We ostensibly live in a democracy. But I think that actually the media and that the government and that the corporate sector, of course, is under the control of, as we talked about earlier, a shadow state. So that, to me, is a much more effective way of ruling than the kind of operatic way that Mussolini ruled Italy at his height and the kind of strutting, you know, bombastic way that Hitler ruled Germany, you know. And he was so overt, of course, and so obviously criminal in the way he dealt with the Jewish population, Hitler, that he was bound to finally fall. It's much more effective, I think, to rule as the United States has done through the power of ideas, so-called to inculcate people with, you know, a sense that they're free when they're not really free. I talked about how my book has been censored, has been ignored, purposely so, by the top media in this country. And it's left to podcasts like yours to get the word out about not only the Bobby Kennedy campaign, but about books like this. So, that kind of control is more insidious, it's more subtle, it's more encompassing. Peter Dale Scott uses the term, it's like the weather. You just come to accept it. It's not as overt as the fascist regimes in Germany and Italy were, but much more effective. Just as a fish doesn't know that they're in water, humans who live in the matrix that we live in don't have that awareness until... Fortunately, we're conscious, sentient beings, so we can get that awareness. But I think only when we see what Thomas Kuhn talked about in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, I wonder if you've read that book, where he said, when you have an anomaly or a counterexample. And I think when you study the JFK assassination, it's like you can just keep pulling on that thread and keep going down that rabbit hole until you see the entire fabric of lies. And you can kind of see the American cosplaying of democracy, the false presentation of democracy, right? Well, in contrast with the uh, the hidden powers. Peter Dale Scott, again, who is a mentor of mine, many others who've studied the world of power, former professor at UC Berkeley, retired now, you know, refers to these as extreme events, the assassination of President Kennedy, the war in Vietnam, 9-11, you know, which allowed government to really uh, widen its net of repression through the Patriot Act and other means, so-called legal means. You know, there are extreme events throughout our lives, throughout history, where the deep state, I think, shows its face and shows what it really means to do, which is to control all of us and exploit us and get our data, get our information, get our money, get our freedom. And I feel that, you know, many good people, family members, friends of mine, have been brainwashed by the system of control, think that we live in an open society, think that we live in a good, decent, liberal, democratic society. But I think that reality is far from that. I think the Trump administration kind of woke some people up about what this country was capable of. But President Biden 
has basically sided again and again with the national security state. And he's doing it by flooding Ukraine with weapons and turning it into a proxy war. We're fighting to the last Ukrainian now. And I have friends who are Ukrainian. I'm propelled by what's going on there now, that the Russians, who should never have invaded, are now fighting against NATO and the U.S., as well as the Ukrainians. It's turned into an international war. And as I say, this the poor people are caught between the East and the West. My heart bleeds for them. So I think this is one more way that Bobby Kennedy Jr., I think, is visionary now. His campaign is saying enough. Let's end this militaristic style of ruling. East versus West, we'll always have to have an enemy. It's the war on terror. It's now it's China. I mean... We've been at war somewhere for some reason all my life. I'm 71 years old. We've been at war for 70 years at least and more since World War II. So enough already. It's crushing the middle class, the cost of these wars, the cost of this empire. Bobby Kennedy is the only political candidate today who's raising these questions about the cost of war, permanent war. Martin Luther King, while he was alive, said we're losing our soul because they were spending more on the means of destruction, on the weapons of destruction, than we are in teaching, than we are in books for children. We've lost our way. We have to get back on track. Absolutely. Thinking about the image behind me, the terrible reality is that most of us, until we know what's going on, are pieces. We are pieces in the game played by the national security state and the successors to Alan Dulles who are running the show behind the scenes, right? And so for us to wake up and not be pieces anymore, but to be critically aware, engaged citizens who are out to not just put an end to this war, but to change the entire system. And Bobby Kennedy Jr. is running a campaign that is a system change campaign. I think it's actually a regime change campaign because I think the CIA changed our regime on November 22nd, 1963. And this is an opportunity to change the regime back to an actual democracy instead of fake democracy. It's amazing. The brand name of Kennedy is so strong still. And it is amazing and ironic as a student, a scholar of history, for me to see both his father and his uncle become victims of the state because they had a different view of the world. JFK's peace speech we talked about before, how visionary that was in June 1963 at American University, where he said, we're all mortal, we all love our children, and we all be the same air. He was talking about our enemy, the Soviet Union, then. The remarkable rhetoric and remarkable things to say. So he had different vision. He was you know, a martyr, I think, to that vision. And his brother, Bobby Kennedy, was... It's remarkable today that their son and nephew is running for office and trying to reclaim this country in a way that his father and uncle, I think, would heartily approve. He's the only member of his family with the courage to do that. But thank God he does, and he deserves all his support. I'm all in, obviously, with Bobby, and I see this as you know, the opportunity to get our country back. So just wanted to put this image up for a moment to recognize that. You know, someone, by the way, Matthew, there's a long arm at work here of Alan Dulles, even though he died before Nixon was even sworn as president. He worked hard for Richard Nixon throughout his 
career. Nixon was a prodigy of, of the Dulles brothers. But someone that weekend, that President Kennedy was killed, and that Jack Ruby then killed the accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. He was a mafia, Aaron Boyd, Jack Ruby. He put in his own date book for some reason that he was at the farm. This is Alan Dulles. The farm is a top secret CIA facility, Camp Peary in Northern Virginia. He had no reason to be there that weekend. He'd been fired from the CIA two years before by President Kennedy, had no official role. Yet he showed up there that weekend to monitor the events, I believe, in Dallas. He put that in his own datebook. I found that in Princeton. He donated all his papers, his documents that the CIA didn't clear out to a library at Princeton. Because I wrote about it in my book that he was at Camp Peary that weekend, that fateful weekend, somebody disappeared that document. It is now no longer available to scholars and researchers. Apparently, the library says they have no record of the document. I have you know, copies of it. Other researchers do. It's absurd that they, you know, playing this game, hiding what Dulles was doing that weekend. And yet that's the way they operate. So sometimes, you know, these people are so cynical, they're willing to alter the record in a really obvious way. Yeah, it's pretty mind-boggling to recognize the extent to which they will continue to go to cover up the big lie, the big lie that is at the heart of all the other lies, because the government lies about almost everything of import. The mainstream media lies about almost everything of import. And that entire web of lies has at its heart this big lie, the big lie of the assassination of President Kennedy. And they have to keep maintaining it because everything else depends on it. And it all falls apart if this gets exposed. So this is of extreme importance to our national awareness. And thank you for sharing that with us. So I'd like to go on to the next point, David, which was kind of about how Alan Dulles was involved in the creation of the CIA. And you've basically identified this guy was a traitor to our country. And if FDR had lived, the Dulles brothers potentially would have been prosecuted and executed as traitors to the United States. Did we want someone of that profile creating our CIA, which was labeled as a potential American Gestapo, and didn't it turn into one based on that sort of Nazi ideology? Well, absolutely. President Truman is, is the one who creates the CIA in 1947, and he says famously he doesn't want it to become, like you say, an American Gestapo, spying on people, killing people, and so forth. He wants it merely to be a collection, information collection, gathering agency that takes information from various government agencies and then collates them and gives them to the president. But Alan Dulles had a very different view. We know the CIA, a much more aggressive, belligerent view of what the agencies should do. And President Eisenhower, unfortunately, allowed him, gave him license to pursue that strategy. President Eisenhower did it because he didn't want a third world war. He thought the CIA was actually doing war on the cheap, and that's what he wanted. He wanted a clandestine war, and that's what Alan Dulles gave him all around the world. At the end, I think Eisenhower regretted it. He said Dulles had left him, quote, a legacy of ashes. And, and again and again, he undermined Eisenhower's attempts to have peace with the Soviet Union. 
So I believe Alan Dulles had a very implacable, a very Nazi-like view of the enemy and, you know, was committed to that strategy throughout his career. And he even undermined presidencies, followed his own policy. I thought, he, I think he knew what was best for the country, he and his brother, and the president sometimes got in the way. And during that formative process, you know, as you said, Truman signed the law that brought the CIA into existence. You wrote in Chessboard in April of 1947, Alan Dulles was asked by the Senate Armed Services Committee to present his ideas for a strong centralized intelligence agency. His memo would help frame the legislation that gave birth to the CIA later that year. So even though Dulles was not the first director of CIA, it was kind of his brainchild. Is that fair? Yes. It was his baby all along. He thought Dewey, Thomas Dewey, the Republican candidate, would win in 1948. He and his brother were all set to go to Washington then. They were shocked by Truman's upset victory then. But he operated in the shadows throughout the Truman presidency. And I believe that he was very influential in, in creating the CIA and doing the type of agency that he wanted. You know, it was Alan Dulles's brainchild in some way, the CIA, and he pushed it more during the Truman years, even when he was in the cold, supposedly. He and his colleagues who worked inside, he did get appointed to the CIA in a lower role during the Truman presidency. And then he becomes head of the agency when Eisenhower was elected in 52. Uh, and his brother, Foster Dulles, became Secretary of State under Eisenhower. So in many ways, Eisenhower outsourced the foreign policy to the Dulles brothers during those years. So after the end of World War II, President Eisenhower did not want a third world war. And going along with the CIA's plans and Alan Dulles' plans was kind of a war on the cheap instead of an all-out third world war. What I find really fascinating is that apparently Winston Churchill had developed a plan for a third world war called Operation Unthinkable, which was going to involve pivoting right at the end of World War II to directly attacking Russia and forcing Russia and the Soviet Union by military force and by means of total war to force Russia to submit to the will of the British Empire and the United States. This is in declassified documents, again, called Operation Unthinkable. And it also involved using defeated Nazi soldiers as cannon fodder in this war. How does that plan potentially tie into the idea of, well, we're not going to do a full-on Third World War. We're going to do a war on the cheap with the CIA. I've not seen those documents. Uh, that's very interesting. But I do talk in the book, and I have done research about how you know victory over the Soviet Union was their game plan, the game plan of uh, war planners in the U.S., including Dallas, including hardliners in the military, like Curtis LeMay, who was head of the Air Force, thought that we had nuclear superiority at that point, which we did over the Soviet Union, despite the Kennedys invoking the missile gap you know, Spectre during the campaign in 1960, he realized he was in the error that we actually had vast nuclear superiority over the Soviet Union. And people like LeMay and Dallas wanted to use it, wanted to actually crush the Soviet Union and China, it had plans to do that. And only Kennedy as president stood in the way. They wanted to use a pretext like Cuba or Berlin some of the place where they thought the communists were getting 
too uppity and to lash back, send, you know, nuclear weapons their way and crush those two countries. Millions would have died as a result of this. And millions in China and the Soviet Union and here in the U.S. So this was madness. And Kennedy thought it was mad when he heard it, when he heard this plan presented to him. So yes, Churchill might have been the first, or you might have seen documents that relate to his, you know, plans or his dreams in England, but certainly this was the Cold War ideology of many people, many people who had the means to start a war. They had the way to start a war. And only President Kennedy stood in their way, thank God. Or else we wouldn't I wouldn't be here today and you probably wouldn't either. Many of us would. That's right. We owe our lives to President Kennedy and resolving the Cuban Missile Crisis with such grace. And, you know, we've just been talking about the real life Dr. Strangeloves that were operating behind the scenes in the United States planning nuclear war. We'll leave it on a bit of a cliffhanger there and continue with that in the future. 